Hey, Rob Bradford here. You guys know I'm always up for a good MVP story, and one of the best stories is Wasabi Technology. Wasabi is the world's hottest cloud storage company, and it's become the go-to provider for professional and collegiate sports teams, including 20 major league baseball teams like the Red Sox and NHL teams like the Bruins and Vancouver Canucks. Even the Liverpool Football Club is getting in on the Wasabi action. So why is Wasabi the MVP? Well, Wasabi was purpose-built to free businesses from skyrocketing storage costs and unpredictable transaction fees that the Amazons of the world are charging. In fact, Wasabi is up to 80% less than those hyperscalers and doesn't charge a cent for businesses to access their data. From Wasabi's AI-enabled intelligent media storage, Wasabi Air, to the industry's only cloud storage service with triple protection against cyber criminals, data deletion, and ransomware, Wasabi's taking the lead in driving innovation in data storage and helping sports teams to unleash the power of their data. Wasabi, another Boston-based champion championship team it's tribe time now welcome to tribe talk on the cleveland indians radio network tribe talk is brought to you by progressive helping indians fans save hundreds on car insurance Hey everyone, welcome to Tribe Talk. Jim Rosenhouse along with you this weekend as once again we join you from home during the shutdown for Major League Baseball and all of the major sports really during the coronavirus. But we do have a good show lined up for you as always today. Heavy on the interviews we will hear shortly from Indians reliever Nick Whitgren as we check in with another of the Tribe players and find out what he's doing to try and stay baseball ready and there have been more discussions and uh, speculation about when that may be. And also on the show today, former Indians catcher, two-time All-Star Ray Fossey. Always a fun interview to talk baseball with Ray and about his career with the Indians and also the Oakland Athletics, too. Quite a career it was, and we'll get into that with Ray Fossey in the second half of our show today. Stay tuned. More to come as we continue with Tribe Talk presented by Progressive on the Cleveland Clinic Indians Radio Network. Welcome back to Tribe Talk. Jim Rosenhouse back with you at home as we continue in baseball shutdown. And one of the Indians trying to stay baseball ready is Nick Whitgren, the reliever who joined the Indians a year ago and really had a nice season for a long time, was part of that setup crew for the Tribe and ended up appearing in 55 games, ERA under three, and was pointing toward similar action this year as a part of that Tribe bullpen. But like everyone else, shut down on March the 12th as uh, baseball suspended spring training at that point, and we have not been able to play since. But uh, Nick says he's doing everything he can and feels good about where he is in terms of baseball shape and being prepared when we do go back to play. 
Yeah, uh, honestly, it's kind of kind of back into off-season routine. I'm lucky enough and fortunate enough that my wife and I invested in a home gym, so I'm able to you know wake up and do my pre-work and get a workout in in the morning and everything, and then uh, throw later on. And I just have a net that I hook up in the backyard and throw into. And uh, you know, luckily I have a catcher as well that I have access to go over to Crusty Sports Performance right now and throw a bullpen uh, twice a week, which is really nice. So really it's just wake up, work out, go for a walk with my wife and son, uh, throw, and then the rest of the day just kind of, you know, play with my uh, with my son out, outside since it's nice and beautiful and, you know, not snowing down here. All right, go ahead, lay it out. What are we looking at in Florida today <laughs> just to, to get that out of the yeah. way? Uh, it's just a little sunny with a nice little 82, you know, degrees, a little bit of humidity, like 75%, but, you know, I'll take it. Well, you mentioned your <laughs> wife and, and how the the home gym and all that kind of good stuff. You may be in, a, in as good a position as anybody on the team in terms of, of having someone at home who can help you with your workouts. And, and explain the experience that Ashley has and, and how that can help you uh, from time to time. Oh, definitely. Uh, you know, I'm really fortunate to have her not alone or not only as my wife, but, you know, she has her master's in science. She has her CSCS, her PN1, which is a nutrition specialist, and then also has her TPI certification, which all that means is that she could essentially be a major league strength coach if she wanted to or choose to. But she also worked underneath Eric Cressy for a year or two and then also had an internship there as well. And, uh, you know, through all of that, essentially she does all my arm care when I'm downstairs lifting. And if a lift, you know, something just either doesn't feel right or I feel like my form's off, I can uh, call up to her and ask her to come down real quick and uh, look, look it over and make sure everything's right. And she can make adjustments uh, to certain things. And if I'm not, you know, feeling up to trying to go heavy one day or do something, uh, on my program, she can adjust the programming and say, okay, if you're not going to do this, then you need to do that. And, you know, it's, it's just really nice. I'm really fortunate to have her. And we should let the listeners know Nick and his wife, Ashley, ran a workout for the Indians front <laughs> office staff over Zoom in the early stages of, of the corona shutdown. And uh, what do you think was more difficult for her, Nick, working with you each day or or setting up something that – that wouldn't just wipe out the rest of us in the front office. <laughs> uh, I don't know. I feel like setting, setting that up. She was, she was kind of nervous about it, but I'm glad we got some good feedback and uh, you, you guys had fun with it. It was a, uh, it was a good time. Hey, at the time of the shutdown, how, how far along in, in your progression toward the regular season were you in spring training? Because there really wasn't much of a spring left at that point. Um, were you pretty close to where you like to be, or did you still have some work to do at that point? No, I, I was about right where I needed to be. I, uh, you know, my outings leading up to that, I was kind of just working on stuff, trying to tinker with a few pitches and uh, essentially get out of my comfort zone with some things. So I was just trying to, you know, maneuver that. And <laughs> kind of funny, like right before I was supposed to throw the next day, after everything shut down and stuff, and I was like, all right, this is going to be, you know, how I would throw in a game in 
as soon as the season starts and stuff like it's time to the last two weeks last 12 days you know it's time to boom get locked in with that situation and like it's an actual real life season game that you know really dictates everything because every game matters as you know we all know from last year and how uh you know the ending of the season happened and stuff so I, I was right there it was just you know the matter of we were what were we I think 10 12 days away from opening day yeah and that that all happened so yeah you know you look at it from that the on-field side the the personal side of things then you have to get home when they decide that camps are going to be shut down and I know we were talking earlier you, you've taken the the social distancing um, and staying at home very, very seriously because you do have a, a little guy and a family going. And um, what was it like trying to get back safely to Florida from Arizona for you? Yeah, that was a uh, that was a little tough. Those were long three days. We left uh, we left Sunday afternoon and then we arrived Tuesday night late at night. Uh, we drove through. And, you know, the two stops and the hotels and stuff, we just try to stay away from people. Uh, we try not to touch as, as many things in the uh, hotel as possible. And, you know, we had a have a travel crib that we just put Jackson in and stuff. So by the time we get there, we can shower up and shower him up and stuff and then throw him, put him right into his crib. So then he doesn't touch anything else around him. And that so uh you know that was that was kind of kind of tough but as soon as we got home uh thankfully you know we have some good friends that actually went out and got some groceries and everything for us so we didn't need to go to the store right away in the midst of all the panic that was going on and stuff um and basically the grocery stores just selling out of everything uh, but yeah so that was, that was a little tough and having a 30 I think it was like a total of 34, 35 hour drive with a one year old was, uh, it was fun, but I don't think I'm going to do that again. <laughs> well, certainly, uh, I think for everybody, a lot of nervous times there, uh, right at the end of camp when, when things were suspended, we're joined by Nick Wickren, Indians relief pitcher. And, uh, you know, Nick talking to some of the starters, uh, they're trying to figure out, you know, how far they should build up, uh, how close is a potential season, everything like that. In terms of throwing and where you'd like to be, uh, how are you handling things right now, knowing that, gosh, it's at least a month and maybe more so before play could begin? Yeah, uh, you know, I was I was pretty much ready at camp, so I took a couple of days off, one, because of drive, two, um, just to let, let the arm relax a little bit from everything that I heard we weren't going to start for a while, so it was time to, okay, well, I'll relax a little bit and then build back up. And now I'm building back up and I'm, I'm built up to where, you know, I can, I can be mid season four in any time really. But, uh, it's essentially getting, getting the mindset right to where, you know, I'll, I'll wake up in the morning on my bullpen days and I'll throw in the morning four or five hours before I have a bullpen and I'll throw into the net and then I'll sit down and, you know, go about my day. And then whenever the bullpen comes, I'll go and do my normal regular bullpen routine that I would do down, you know, in right center field and do all of that. And then just hop on the mound, like my name got called and, you know, kind of try to simulate my warm up pitches and the amount of time and then take a hot second break and, 
you know, <laughs> I even took it as far as I ran around the facility real quick, acting like I ran in from right center field and then get back on the mound and do my eight warm up pitches and then face like three hitters, you know, just tell the catcher, Hey, we'll have a righty in there. Or, hey, we'll have a lefty in there and then, you know, throw to them and then be done. So you're doing all this and, and we still don't know uh, when things will happen. There's been a lot of different plans out there. I'm, I'm sure you keep track. How closely do you keep track and, and do any of them jump out at you as saying, Hey, you know what, this, this could work and, and maybe we could have a season. Yeah, uh, honestly, the latest one that came out about having everyone at their home cities and then, uh, you know, just switching up to three different division divisions, essentially. Uh, I feel like that one, everyone, you know, wouldn't mind. We'd be in the hometown. We'd have our families there, which is, you know, a big part of it as well, because no, I, I feel like a lot of people, you know, uh, would like to have their families there if possible and uh you know that way it feels at least a little bit more of a normal season rather than everyone huddled in arizona in a hotel you know that whole deal but yeah this latest plan that you know i saw of all those the three divisions and us having you know like milwaukee and st louis and uh both chicago teams in there you know that that's definitely interesting and in my eyes I, I feel like you know that would probably work the best yeah maybe that one will we'll get some legs we'll see there's been a lot thrown out there and and that does seem like one that that may have a chance to to work well for for everybody involved if if the virus does take a step back a little bit switching gears with nick whitgren uh indians reliever Nick, you know, you, you look at, we've had a chance to talk to, to different players on the team, and everyone has their own path to the major leagues. Um, a lot of times you, you can kind of see it with how things go in high school, and you pitched at Purdue, had a great career there for a, a big-time college program. You're drafted ninth by the Marlins. But looking back at it in high school, in the shadow of Purdue University and in Lafayette, Indiana, I know you mentioned your mom and dad went there, and, and you wanted to go there, but you had to take a little side trip first uh, explain you know how coming out of high school that you know you really had to to figure out a different path to get where you wanted to be eventually yeah so uh you know high school I wanted to go to Purdue. my mom went to Purdue my dad went to Purdue my older brother my senior year uh who's a year older than me he was at Purdue so it just ran in the family and uh they came out and watched me one day and I, I was throwing 83 miles an hour it was uh, tough, but, you know, I pitched a lot earlier on in the in the season and stuff, and they saw me on the later end. And uh, I was playing shortstop the whole entire time, and that was kind of my love rather than pitching. I wanted to be a shortstop, and I think I had one other offer from some southeast Iowa community college or something like that, but Parkland Junior College, I had a mutual friend, the coach, actually went to my high school and stuff and he saw me the summer before when I was only pitching. I was lucky enough that he offered me a scholarship because Purdue saw, I think the inning, maybe two and just walked away. <laughs> so I went to Purdue or I went to uh, Parkland and I told him, I was like, Hey, can I only pitch? Because I realized we had a guy named Justin Parr that was going to beat me out easily for that position. And, uh, our coach was just like, yeah, <laughs> like, please, that might be the best decision you've ever made. So 
all of a sudden my velo started going back up. I was 90, 91, 92. Purdue offered me. I signed. I went to Purdue. And, you know, the uh, rest is kind of history. I kind of didn't really think about the whole draft idea or playing at this part uh, or at this level until, you know, I went to the Cape with Kevin Pilecki and some scouts started talking to me, some agents started talking to me. And, you know, then my junior year, having a guy like Kev getting drafted in the first round brings a lot of scouts to the games. And I had a good showing my junior year as well. And, you know, just kind of from there on out, I ended up getting drafted and it kind of took me by a little bit of a surprise. And, but it was kind of cool. And now, you know, here I am. So I never really thought of it until, you know, about my sophomore, junior year of uh, college. Well, we'll finish with this. Um, you had mentioned earlier about the, the preparation that you were doing in spring training because this year's team, you, you realize how important every game is based on what happened at the end last year. Uh, what did you see this spring that, that has you feeling really good about this ball club when they can start a season again and, and get it rolling? You know, we have we have a real big edge on us. Uh, everyone was just ready to go. Everyone everyone that came in to, you know, Domingo, uh, Delino, uh, everyone just kind of clicked, you know, clicked right away and became a team, a unit right off the get-go from the first day, which in my eyes, you know, it, it usually takes a little bit of time to build that up and get that, you know, feeling together as a family. But I, I feel like everyone clicked from day one and we all kind of had a little edge from last year on us and, you know, we wanted to get after it right away, right then and there. So when the season, you know, got shut down, it was kind of, kind of a little, little jab to us. But, you know, I, I know my teammates, I know my friends, and all of them are staying ready, and all of them are going to be ready to go whenever this is up. Well, I know fans are, are looking forward to seeing some baseball at some point. And, uh, Nick, we appreciate the time today. Thanks so much for stopping by, and hopefully we'll see you soon. Definitely appreciate it. That's Nick Whitgren. Real good outlook on things in terms of getting back to play whenever that may be. Stay tuned. When we come back, we'll hear from a former Indian All-Star, Ray Fossey. Great stories from him. And that's coming your way next on the Cleveland Clinic Indians Radio Network. Talking tribe. We're talking baseball. Welcome back to Tribe Talk, presented by Progressive. Jim Rosenhouse along with you back home as we await Major League Baseball to resume play and start the season in 2020. Still holding out hope that that can happen, and we'll see what transpires. And uh, one of those in and around the game, he's had a great career as a radio and television broadcaster with the Oakland Athletics, but began his 12-season Major League career and had some of his best seasons with the Cleveland Indians back in the early 70s. And we're talking about Ray Fossey, 
uh, catcher who was in the All-Star Game in 1970 and 71, and we'll get to that 1970 All-Star Game on Part 2 of our visit with Ray on next week's show. But uh, first, to look back with him on uh, how his career started back in the late 60s when he was drafted by the Indians, how different things were. And when we caught up with Ray recently, uh, he's bumming that uh, baseball's down because the Oakland Athletics made their only visit to Cleveland or would have made their only visit to Cleveland in late April, and they missed out on that. So, Or that's one of the main things that uh, Ray missed with uh, the start of baseball being delayed this season. And uh, when we caught up with him, he says he's uh, doing what most other people are doing, and that's trying to stay safe during the coronavirus. Well, I wish we were playing, and good to talk to you, Rosie, and to all the great fans in Cleveland. And uh the thing that disappoints me the most, and, and I'm hunkered down in Arizona and, uh, you know, we were shelter in place. Governor Ducey kind of uh, said, hey, everybody stay at home. We've been doing that. Uh, the good thing about Arizona, the drive through banks, drive up uh, pharmacies and groceries now, the big deal about order online, they bring them out to you. So it's it's been it's been shelter in place, and I, I can't even – I have the number of days in my calendar book that I normally have in there for the baseball games where we're playing. And the thing that disappoints me the most is that we would have been in Cleveland just recently. And uh, unfortunately now with the new scheduling, and who knows what's going to happen with the situation, but you know, in the past it was one trip to Cleveland. Cleveland would come to our park, and that was it for the season. So it's disappointing. Uh, I always enjoy coming back to Cleveland enjoy the city it's changed tremendously since i first showed up there over 50 years ago and um but you know drafted in 65 by the tribe played through the system 67 68 in september and then got there full-time in 69 70 of course the big year and that's uh the 50th anniversary for many things including my wife carol and uh her spending or us spending our honeymoon in cleveland because we got married on april the 4th and I opened and we opened the season on April the 7th. So our honeymoon was on the flight from Arizona to Cleveland, off day, workout, play the game, and that was it. But it's been a wonderful ride. And other than the fact that I've worked for the A's for so many years, my heart is still in Cleveland. If the A's don't win, I hope the Indians do. And I enjoy listening to you and Tom Hamilton uh, doing the post postseason games and a lot of excitement. I just... I just hope it happens, and I thought it was going to happen in 16, but unfortunately it didn't. i got to let you in on a little secret, Ray. You mentioned Oakland would have been here last week. The weather was miserable. We might have gotten <laughs> one game in. There was some snow one night, and it wasn't good. I don't good. care. <laughs> <laughs> I don't care. Listen, I, I started there, uh, like I said, many years ago, and, and it, the weather, and, and that's why we always had, the opener off day in case the opener was rained out or snowed out or frozen out or whatever. And then you could play the next day. And so, you know, I, I played a lot of games in miserable weather at the municipal stadium. So I I'm familiar with that, but you know, with only one trip that teams make in under the normal circumstances, those games, you know, that means Rosie, we went around at the park a long time so they could be played somehow, some way, unless they're called previously to people showing up and all that stuff. But, uh, you know, it was, it was, um, Jacobs Field, and I still think it's Jacobs Field, that when you had the 455 consecutive sellouts, I always remember Mickey Morbido, our traveling secretary for, for many, many years, started out as a bat boy for the Yankees, and now he's been with the A's since Billy Martin came out, what, in 80, 81. 
But I remember Mickey would get on the PA system on the plane as we're arriving in Cleveland and said, hey, guys, don't give me the checks to cash at the park because they don't have any people there because they've sold out every game and there's no money. So, so I, and that still stands out because that was the beginning of consecutive sellouts and uh, the great fans in Cleveland were tremendous during that period of time and all the success your ball club had in those early years at Jacobs Field. Uh, you mentioned your, your time with the Indians and it started being drafted by the Tribe. Uh, full disclosure, I checked in with Bobby D earlier today and I said, hey, give me something fun on, on Ray Fossey. And he said, uh, nowadays the draft, you, you go to the MLB Network studios if you're expected <laughs> to be a high round draft pick. You're on TV. It's a big deal. Uh, prime time, all that kind of stuff. 1965, you're picked seventh pick in the in the draft overall by the Indians. What were you doing that day? And how long <laughs> after the Indians made the selection did you actually find out you were selected? <laughs> well, it was Marion, Illinois, where I grew up. And uh, everybody told me I was going to be drafted. I had no idea what the draft was. All I knew later, Rosie, that the draft was implemented by Major League Baseball to reduce uh, the bonuses. Rick Mundy was the number one, and he told me that he got in excess of 100. I'll be honest with you, I got 28,000 as a number one draft choice in 1960 uh, and 65 people said, well, you know, that's a good one. I said, no, it's not. I said, in today's world, the, the slots are about 8 million for a number one draft choice. And then, you know, if you're number one of a club, it could be four or 5 million. I said, so I don't think it's comparable, but, but I will say, um, I, I can't really remember. I was in Marion waiting and somebody told me and, uh, I, I really can't remember. All I know is that Walter Shannon, uh, was a scout and the scouting system at that time, Walter Shannon had never seen me play. And there was kind of a pool of scouts in that area and whatever they call that, but they would submit reports to a, a central office, if you will. And Walter Shannon saw that someone, I think it was a Pittsburgh scout that had sent in a report on me as a catcher. And the Indians said, well, we're looking for a catcher. And they took that information and I was drafted based on somebody else seeing me and not the Cleveland Indians. So uh, as, as it turned out, uh, Rosie, I mean, I got to the big leagues and, you know, I, I signed in 65, played in Reading, Pennsylvania, uh, played in Reno where I met my wife, Carol, as she was going to school, University of Nevada, Reno. Uh, and then 67 in Portland, 68 in Portland, both years in September, the big leagues. And then 69, I got there. So if I had been with another club, let's say, let's say the Cincinnati Reds, I mean, Bill Plummer played there, and that was before minor league free agency. And I remember the Reds would say to Bill Plummer, you know, you, you know, we have to keep you in case something happens to Johnny Bench. Well, nothing happened to him. So here's Bill Plummer spends his career in the minor leagues, no chance to go to another club uh, because there was no Rule 5 draft or no minor league draft or whatever. But I was fortunate to be drafted by Cleveland, and, uh, you know, it, it was a thrill for me. Forget about the fact that I was drafted where I was. All I know, when Walter Shannon came to my home in Marin, Illinois, my late mother was there. My, uh, I had an attorney and my high school baseball coach and the high school athletic director was there. And I'll never forget, Rosie, whenever they were talking money in contract, which is nothing. And Walter Shannon left. And I said, where is he going? He said, well, we couldn't come to an agreement. I said, call him and get him back here. Go get him. I said, I don't care what I get. I just want to sign. I just, I just want to play baseball. So it was a quick sign. And, uh, you know, I, I just got to the point that, um, um, you know, I, I just had a, I had a great time playing for the Indians. And, and Rosie, 
I mean, Bobby D might have told you, but I never wanted to be traded. I, I thought my whole career was going to be spent in Cleveland. Unfortunately, that didn't happen. And you're spending that time. It's the late 60s, early 70s. What was Cleveland like to, to be a part of the ball club at that point in time? Uh, maybe so different from today, I would think. Well, first of all, the stadium um, and the fact that, you know, opening day. And, and I, I always thought and remembered someone said, if you could draw 800,000 people, you could break even for your whole season, uh, your whole major league, the organization, whatever. And we would draw a big crowd on opening day, 50, 60, 70,000, whatever it might be, because that stadium with, you know, held 75,000 and who knows, you know, with, with football and, and all that. But um, but after that, Rosie, there was nobody in the stands. And, and we would jokingly say, well, you count that side, I'll count this side. And, you know, we had no people there because we weren't good. Um, and it seemed like any time a player had a good year, the fear of maybe making too much money is going to be traded. And I remember when Greg Nettles was traded to the Yankees prior to the 73 season, actually the offseason, and he and I were working out, and he came to, to work out. He said, hey, I just got traded to the Yankees. And I said, hey, good luck, because Gabe Paul was there at the time, and he had gone to the Yankees. Greg goes there, Chambliss goes there, and lo and behold, 10 days going spring training, I'm traded to Oakland in 73. And we ended up winning the World Series. So when I saw Greg, I said, hey, Puff, you went to the Yankees. I went to the A's. We won. You didn't. You know, so I've kind of, I kind of threw that in his face a little bit. But uh, it, it was a different time. Um, like I said, you know, to catch Gaylord Perry in 72, uh, caught Sam McDowell in 70. Sam only won 20 games one year. That was the 1970 season. Um, Gaylord, of course, in 1972, phenomenal numbers that, you know, I, I always say to people, Go on and look up Gaylord's numbers, whatever method you do. Uh, you can go on and look at 1972. Rosie made 40 starts. He had 40 decisions, 24 and 16. He had one save, and that was in Kansas City when Ken Aspermani was managing. And that's also when the starting pitcher for the next day was in the stands charting the pitches. And I remember Ken Aspermani looked up to Gaylord and he said, come down. And he said, what are you talking about? He said, come down. And so he came down to the dugout. He said, get dressed. I need you to close this game. So Gaylord's record was 24-16 and one save. He had uh, 342 innings, 29 complete games, sub-two earned run average. And I talked to pitchers today, and I throw those numbers at, how the heck did he do that? I said he was on a four-man rotation. He never wanted to come out of the game. And it was, it was a thrill to catch him, regardless of what people said. But he was as good a competitor as it was. And even more so, Rosie, I had the privilege of catching him in 72, won the signing award. And then fast forward two years to Catfish 174, also winning that. Those two pitchers both, in their acceptance of their awards, said, I could not have done it without my catcher, Ray Fawcett. And to think that someone with an individual award like that would give credit to somebody else, I was floored and still floored to this day that they would do that. But, you know, my time there, um, you know, was tremendous. Like I said, when I was traded, I was, I was devastated because my boyhood idol was – Stan usual and Stan played with the Cardinals his whole career. I, I watched him and I said, you know, I'm going to play with the Indians my whole career and I'm going to live there and I'm going to work there. And, you know, things didn't, you know, they happened the way they did. And uh, I ended up trading and three years later, I'm back in Cleveland in 76 for two more years. Stay tuned. We'll take a short break and have more with Ray Fossey after this timeout on the Cleveland Clinic Indians radio network. Welcome back to Tribe Talk, presented by Progressive. Jim Rosenhouse back with you and joined this week 
by former Indians all-star catcher Ray Fossey, who uh, was a Cleveland Indian from the get-go, a seventh overall pick in the draft in 1965, started his career in the late 60s, and uh, some unusual times when he first came to Cleveland, not only for him, but also his wife, as he was a newlywed at the time, and he explains how different that was as uh, his wife was from California, he was from Illinois, and they spent their honeymoon in Cleveland, Ohio. My wife, my wife is a native California, and, and basically the story goes that we were in spring training. My wife was teaching in Southern California. I was in Tucson with the Indians, and we decided, I mean, we had met in 66, I went on to play minor league baseball. She went on to teach. She flew with World Airways. She was teaching um, in Southern California, like I said. And, you know, we kind of saw each other again in 1969. And then I went to Venezuela in the off season. And next thing you know, in the spring, we saw each other. and We said, you know, let's get married. And I went to Alvin Dark and I say, Skip, you mind if I go to Reno to get married? Because that's where we had met. And he said, okay. And this was on the 2nd or 3rd of April. And he said, the only stipulation is that I want you back in Tempe on the 5th of April because you're going to be the opening day catcher in Cleveland. So I flew with Luke Klimchak, who was our best, my best man, flew to Reno. We got married. And on the 5th, I was back in Tempe. And I saw some friends from my hometown. They looked at me because I hadn't gotten any sleep. And they probably said, man, this is a big league life. I don't know what's going on. And uh, so we got on a plane in, in, in uh, Phoenix, Arizona. We flew to Cleveland. And I remember we, we were staying out, I think, at Hopkins Airport uh, Hotel. And a whole bunch of guys, I remember Bob Miller in specifically, uh, that, that he was there, uh, the late Bob Miller, unfortunately. And we had a whole bunch of guys having dinner. My wife was there. That was our honeymoon. And then I opened uh, with, the, with the Cleveland Indians uh, on the 7th of April. And here we are 50 years later, still married, and uh, I'm very thankful. But, you know, Rosie, when, when I was traded in 73, I, I do have to mention this. My late father-in-law, John Mancuso, um, and his wife, Bernice, both uh, deceased, unfortunately, lived up in the valley in Tracy, uh, California. When I was traded, uh, it was almost like it was meant to be because in 73, we won the World Series. As soon as I got there, actually, my in-laws uh, – bought season tickets. I said to my father, I said, why would you do that? I can give you tickets. He said, no, son, I want to be there every day in my same seat. So he would, he bought season tickets for he and his wife at the end of the dugout. And that's at the time when Francesco's was open and they would go there and have winning clams and come over and watch the game. So 73, 74, win the world series against the Mets and then the Dodgers, they got a chance to watch those games, travel to Los Angeles and, and, you know, just be a part of, of something special in a world championship. Rosie, on April the 1st of 1975, my father-in-law passed away with a massive heart attack. And that year, we also lost Catfish Hunter. I ended up being in the bullpen. I get traded back to Cleveland in 76. It's like God sent me to Oakland for three years to play for the, for the A's, for my wife and I to go there, for us to be with them during that period of time. And, you know, selfishly for me to, to win a couple of world championships, but to be traded back to Cleveland. It was like, wow, full circle. I'm coming back to where I never wanted to leave in the first place and all the circumstances involved in those three years. And, you know, it, it was just a it's just a story. It was a storybook two and a half years that we spent there. And it was tremendous for my wife to be with her family and especially for me and for my father-in-law uh, to he had three daughters. So for, for me to be a part of that family 
he said, Hey, this is great. You know, let's go play golf. Let's go do this, whatever. And so it was, it was a lot of fun to be there for those actually 73, 74. And like I said, unfortunately in 75, he passed away, but I uh, ended up back in Cleveland for a couple of years. And then Mr. Segi traded me uh, or let me go, which is a whole other story. But, you know, it's been it's been a good life, uh, Rosie. You know, anybody, anybody involved in baseball, it's a great life. And I've been blessed and fortunate my whole life to be involved in baseball in some capacity. And I couldn't ask for anything more. Lots of great stuff from Ray Fossey. And, again, this is a two-part interview with Ray. When we join him next week, we will talk about the 1970 All-Star Game, the injury in the home plate collision with Pete Rose, and everything that transpired since. So some good stuff to look forward to next week on Tribe Talk, presented by Progressive. That'll do it for this week's show. Thanks so much for tuning in. And don't forget, you can pick us up on the Indians Radio Network, Indians.com, and wherever you download your favorite podcasts as this show comes out in podcast form shortly after it airs on the weekends, usually late Saturday. Also, a couple of programming notes. Don't forget that the Indians Radio Network is airing rebroadcasts of the Indians' 22-game win streak from back in 2017. We're still in the very early stages, a week into that three-week stretch of winning baseball for the Tribe. And you can check out a podcast called The Streak, previewing each of those games with great interviews from players and coaches who are all a part of it, along with Tom Hamilton, too. So some good stuff there wherever you download your podcast. I want to thank Brian Matze, as always, for helping to put together our show each week. Until next week, this is Jim Rosenhouse reminding you that you've been listening to Tribe Talk, presented by Progressive on the Cleveland Clinic Indian Radio Network. Tribe Talk on the Cleveland Indians Radio Network has been brought to you by Progressive, helping Indians fans save hundreds on car insurance. this it's friday afternoon when a thought hits you i can waste another weekend doing the same old whatever or i can conquer it i can hop into my all-new hyundai santa fe and hit the road any road the steeper the better because my all-new santa fe is available with h-track all-wheel drive so i can hit the trail without a worry in the world Heck, with three rows and best-in-class rear cargo space, I can pack the whole family in with all our gear. We've got available dual wireless charging for our phones, so we'll never lose touch with civilization, and we won't lose touch with the primordial power of Mother Earth. So which is it? Waste the weekend or do something a little more epic? And conquer it in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai. There's joy in every journey.